Lord, that's our belief. We know what you've done for us, Lord Jesus, and we're grateful for it. And we come to you now that through the preaching of your word, you would transform us into that which you would have us be, your followers, all our days, for your glory, and we would walk in that grace and truth all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said previously, welcome to this season of Lent where for 40 days minus Sundays, we travel together to keep Lent. We don't celebrate Lent, we keep it. In other words, we do self-examination, we walk in those disciplines that maybe we're, we're falling behind on, and we continue to strive to follow Jesus. And it's a grateful, solemn uh, season in growth in our Lord if we will give ourselves to it. So here at Christ Church, we've arrived to this wonderful passage that Beatrice read for us today in 1 Peter 3, where we get encouragement on what Lent's all about, the cross of Christ. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. We're going to look at verse 18 through 22. Last week, we got encouragement to carry on in the reality of God's love for us in Christ. And as we reflected on that, remember what, we're, what we read today is within, within that context of suffering. Suffering in, in our area doesn't look the same as it does in the church in Ukraine. Doesn't look the same as the church in Nigeria or South Africa or in Asia. But every professing Christian at one sense or another is going to have a season of suffering as we identify with Christ. And so Peter reminded us last week, even in the midst of that suffering, we're always to be prepared for the reason for the hope that we have doing this with gentleness and respect. And to carry on has a foundation. So what we hear today is the result of the cross personally the result for the cross corporately, and why it all matters. So let's look at this. First, the cross, the result of the cross personally for each and every one of us in Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. So right off the bat, coming off being prepared, he reminds us that it's grounded in the suffering of Christ. Because we're suffering as we are making a defense, reminding us that Christ suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous. To what? Bring us into his presence. To bring us into God. He willingly did so. Pause for a moment and drink that in. The magnificent statement of this proclamation. It's good news. Jesus, the Invisible image, the visible image of the invisible God, perfectly righteous, Son of God, died for you. And when he did this, he accomplished everything to bring you into his presence, to bring us to himself. And as we place our trust in this finished work of the cross, we're righteous, we are perfect, we are holy. That's how he sees us, in his favorable presence now. Oh, not yet fully realized, 
It's going to get better. But right now, we can experience his love and grace on the cross. In Christ, you are righteous. Have you truly placed all your trust in Christ on the cross for you? So many of our culture hear this, and they go, yeah, I believe it. If a person says that, they don't understand, right? To treat the cross of Christ so casually and his great love for us and all that he endured on the cross is not to be treated casually. He did it so that he might bring us to himself. And that's good news. Secondly, we see that the victory of the cross for corporately, because the difficulties in this text really begin here, all right? This is some of the most difficult Greek in the whole Bible to read and to study. And so much is misunderstood by certain denominations about what Peter is trying to write here. For some, look at what Peter is saying as he preaches to the spirits in prison. Uh, think that what means that Jesus, when he died, before he rose again, he went into hell and preach the gospel to people who had died in Old Testament times. And if that were true, it would mean that those people had an opportunity to repent after they died. And a growing number of teachers are claiming that. It's easy to see why that can be co-opted into that belief. If Jesus preached the gospel in hell, why should we not believe that even in hell there would be an opportunity for people to be saved? If it were the case that those who do not receive Christ in this life will have an opportunity later on, I think it would be a good idea to just call all our missionaries home. I mean, why put your lives on the line in the Ukraine? You know, I got a letter from the Young Life leaders in Ukraine. Those of us who sponsor Young Life, and we all got them. ARDF, a lot of notices this week about pastors who are staying because that's their flock. Amazing. Well, if, if it's true that you can receive Christ after death, well, just call them home. It's not worth it, right? No, but the reality is Peter never says that Jesus descended into hell in the text. All right? Never mentioned here. Look carefully. There's no reference to hell anywhere in this passage. Secondly, why did he preach to the spirits who disobeyed only in the time of Noah? Why didn't he preach to the spirits uh, at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, right, who disobeyed? And third, the idea that some people might be given a second chance to repent after death goes against the plain teaching of all the whole counsel of God. The, the quintessential text for this point is Hebrews 9.27. is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. No, my friends, Jesus didn't go to hell. Hell came to him on the cross. Those who believe that Jesus preached in hell between his death and resurrection often quote the Apostles' Creed, the old Apostles' Creed, which says he descended to hell. I'm grateful that, that even in the, in the 70s, doc, and Dr. Packer, in, in, in doing the translation for our new prayer book, they kept the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead, right? 
Jesus did enter hell, but not through a visit there between his death and resurrection. Hell came to him on the day that he died on Calvary. He experienced all the dimensions of hell on the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus lasted for six agonizing hours. And from the time he was beginning to be scourged, which is about 9 o'clock in the morning with his trial, to being nailed at the cross at noon, the crowds taunting him, religious leaders mocked his claims, thieves were crucified him, hurled insults to him. And at midday, darkness covered the whole land. This was not an eclipse. Jesus was crucified at Passover when there was a full moon. And besides, an eclipse doesn't last for three hours. The darkness of Calvary can only be explained by a direct intervention by God. Jesus was now entering the heart of his passion. It began as he suffered at the hands of his friends, Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. All the rest forsook him and intensified as he suffered at the hands of his enemies. He was scourged, mocked, condemned, and nailed to the cross. And at midday, Jesus began to experience another dimension of suffering at the hand of his father. And when this happened, it's like God turned off the lights. Jesus' suffering during those three awful hours of darkness is absolutely indescribable. Peter's already told us in chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is what was happening in the darkness. He carried the weight of all the accumulated guilt and shame of the entire world. The wrath of God was poured off poured upon him. He was cut off from relationship and the comfort and the love of his father. And throughout this suffering, he was in a conscious agony of body and soul. That is hell. And Jesus tasted every dimension of that pain on the cross. Jesus' descent into hell was not a disembodied visit for preaching between his death and resurrection. It was the heart of his suffering upon the cross for us. He entered hell so that you and I would never have to know what it was like. That should cause us to pause, thank him, and praise, and worship. So what does this all have to do with us? Well, Peter doesn't stop there. The second half, verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You see, Peter is writing about those spirits in prison as the people in Noah's day, right? He, Jesus preached to the disobedient folks in the time of Noah. Peter wants us to know that the same Jesus who died and rose again spoke by the Holy Spirit to his generation through Noah. When Noah spoke, Jesus was speaking through him. Those who heard Noah were highly resistant to the message. They continued in their disobedience to God, and that's why their spirits are in prison today. But Christ spoke to them during their lifetime through Noah. Now, here's the interesting thing and the encouragement for each and every one of us. 
when Noah spoke God's truth, God spoke through him. And when you speak about Jesus, Jesus speaks through you. The Lord Jesus speaks in every age by his spirit through his people. When you have an opportunity to explain all that Jesus and the reason for the hope that is in you, the Holy Spirit will take your words and use what you say as a means of Jesus speaking to the lost. This will help us gain confidence in speaking about Jesus. God speaks to people who do not know him through ordinary Christian believers who are ready to explain that their hope is found in Jesus. Always being prepared to make a defense of the reason for the hope that we have, doing so with gentleness and respect. So don't get discouraged by small results. I mean, you can't say that Noah was a great revivalist, right? It says in the text that only eight people got on the ark, right? God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. But only eight got on. Of all the characters in human history, God chose Noah, through Peter, as the model for our ministry. And this is significant. Noah's generation was the most wicked ever in human history. The text says of them that that generation were only evil all the time. <laughs> you think it's bad now. If you have found that some people around you are hard-hearted and hard to reach, just think of Noah. God called him to speak to the most resistant people who've ever lived. Peter, in his second letter in chapter 2, verse 5, repeats that fact. Noah didn't see great results from his preaching. In fact, at the end of his entire life of ministry, only eight people were saved through him. But that should teach us to be cautious about how we measure results. The important thing about Noah's ministry was that Christ spoke through him. That did not mean that vast crowds of people repented and believed, but they did hear the voice of Jesus. Ministry among highly resistant people isn't easy. What matters is not the number of converts and people we lead to Christ, but our faithfulness to Christ in a place where he has set us. And if he has set you in a tough place, don't get discouraged by small results. Faithfulness, not success, is what we're called to. There are only two occasions in all of human history of the world when a judgment from God res will res fall on the whole world. The first one was Noah. The next will be when our Lord returns. The task of declaring God's truth before the first judgment was given to Noah. The task of declaring God's truth before the final judgment is given to us. God has put us all in Noah's shoes he has given us the wonderful privilege of speaking to others in his name and on his behalf. Your life and ministry matters. Your words and invitations about Jesus to a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, may be the means that the Holy Spirit uses to bring them to faith in Christ and to change their eternal destiny. So don't ever underestimate your purpose, your significance in God's purpose. God will be at work when you choose to act redemptively, pray effectively, and speak courageously.
That's how highly resistant people who do not know him and desperately need to hear from him will come to know the truth. In the ark, only a few people, eight, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, Peter says. It saves you by the resurrection context, right? Let's look at context here. You know, it's by the resurrection who has gone into heaven and seated at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Noah's ark is a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ, in other words. God told Noah, enter the ark. It must have taken a huge act of faith for him to do that. For after, I mean, it took him years to build it. It was dry ground. You know, there was no rain, no sign of rain, but Noah believed God's promise and acted upon it. Then God closed the door and judgment came down. Rain fell from the heavens, springs of water rose from the earth. The ark rose, carrying Noah and his family safely through the judgment into a new world. When you take the step of believing God's promise and putting your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible describes you as being in Christ. It's Paul's most often used term about the church, in Christ. That's who we are. Just as Noah is brought safely through the first judgment in the ark, so Christ will bring all who are in him safely through God's final judgment in the world. Being in Christ saves you. And that's why Peter speaks here about baptism. Peter is not suggesting that being baptized saves you in itself. Baptism is the sign of a person identifying fully with Jesus, and it is being in Christ that saves you. Because he, verse 22, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Noah didn't have it easy. God called him to a very tough ministry, and he was not privileged to lead a great revival in which hundreds came to faith in repentance in God. But Jesus spoke to people of Noah's generation through Noah, and God was faithful to his promise and brought Noah safely through the flood into a whole new life. This same God will be faithful to you, brothers and sisters. Throughout your life, and he will bring you safely through the judgments and into eternity. And this gives you a solid ground for living a confident life, even in an uncertain world. So if you go back up and read the whole part of this section, starting from last week's encouraging word, verse 14, he says, Have no fear of them, or be troubled. So let's review what we've learned. You can be confident in sharing the reason for the hope you have with others because when you speak about Jesus, Jesus speaks through you. Secondly, you can live with confidence because the Christ who died for you will never let you go. Having grasped that reality, we're in a better position to see why Peter calls us to live above the level of fear. In the early days of the church, they had a lot to be fearful of. Remember, this is written to the churches in modern-day Turkey. Nero was emperor. They lived in a brutal, tyrannical reign. 
And one of the ways in which the early Christians demonstrated the presence of God in their lives was by living a confident life in an uncertain world. I am convinced of that the specter of fear that covers our land today with all its great challenges offers great opportunities. The war in Ukraine, COVID, inflation, the uncertainty of our economy, the rapidly changing cultural narratives have all contributed to a climate of anxiety and fear. As a Christian, you have a unique opportunity to show that knowing Jesus makes it possible to live with confidence in this uncertain world. Such confidence in a fearful world will make highly resistant people stop, look, and listen. We've seen this in Joss, Nigeria. Mama Gloria Kwashi is her name. She's the wife of Bishop Ben Kwashi. In Nigeria, they call the bishop's wives Mama. She's the mother of the diocese. It's heartwarming to see how much respect Gloria Kwashi has in their diocese. When the women of the diocese gather around and they pray for the children, it's like a bunch of lionesses. You better not mess with them. You don't mess with a lion, right? They're strong believers. And Gloria recognized that in Joss, as the Fulani herdsmen come by, oh, every 9 to 12 to 18 months, they sweep down, they kill, they maim. It's awful. And it leaves Joss with a bunch of orphans. She saw all these orphans running around the streets of Joss, and she said, Ben, we have to do something about this. So they adopted one. But that's not enough. She says, we got to do more as a diocese, as a witness to the gospel. So they started an orphanage. Well, we're Anglicans, right? What do you do with kids? You disciple them in the reality of the gospel as well as teaching them to read, write, and arithmetic. So they started a school. And every day at school, morning prayer begins at 8 o'clock. You know, so they do morning prayer. They do chapel once a week. They do evening prayer every day. And it's wonderful to see how the gospel continues to spread in very uncertain, difficult circumstances. No, my friends. They've been beaten, attacked, sexually assaulted. And yet they're undeterred, for they know who has them in the palm of their hand. Just have no fear of them or be troubled. Set apart Jesus for who he is in your life as holy. Always be prepared to give a defense for the reason for the hope you have, doing this with gentleness and respect, because he truly died. The righteous for us, unrighteous, to bring us to God, and by clothing us in his righteousness, now we can live without fear, with confidence. This is true. Let's go forth in that reality. Always being prepared because our Lord subjected himself to the cross for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this day and for this gospel, which reminds us that we can shine your light, recognizing that even as we do so, the results are up to you. It's not up to us, but help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to just 
continue to grow and love you for who you are. For Lord Jesus, you died for us. And this Lenten season draws us back to that reality. And that you preach through people in every age. And that our, our baptism corresponds to the reality of this faith. And therefore, we can make our appeal through the resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that we would take that challenge that Peter gives to us to heart. And by doing so, you be glorified in our midst. And Lord, that in all things, we would walk with confidence, having no fear. In Jesus' name, amen.